Welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Lindsay Simsick and Krista Williams, and we're so happy and so grateful you're here. Yes, we know there's a lot of audio listening you could be tuning into now, and we're so glad you chose Almost 30. You don't need to be 30 or any specific age to listen and enjoy the content. It was just the name we picked when we started the show (laughs) six years ago. (laughs) We think about it now. We smile upon our younger selves who had no idea that it wouldn't age with us, but it's a mindset, truly. I feel like so many of us, if not all of us, are going through some sort of transition where we feel like, what the heck should I do? Or I should know more or just frustration, doubts, fears. And we're here to just support you in those moments and beyond and hopefully remind you you're not alone, that you have what you need to navigate it and that leaning into community like we have here at Almost 30 is super, super important and very healing along the way. Mm -hmm. We have a membership, we have courses and content, we have a blog, We have all the things, but overall, we love to pour our love and energy into the podcast. And today is a really special episode. We have Rich Roll on the podcast. Rich Roll and The Rich Roll Show is one of the first things I ever listened to when I started to get into podcasts around eight years ago. And I'll never forget, I was living in New York City at the time in Long Island City, to be specific, actually, in Queens. And I started to listen to podcasts and it changed my life. I couldn't believe that I could or there was a space for me to grow and evolve and just learn. You know, I think I felt so disconnected from learning, going to school, going to college, not really knowing what I wanted to do or why I was there. I kind of felt like I had to be there. It was something that I needed to do. So to find podcasts where I could educate myself and just be inspired by people's conversations or their interests or these experts, it just changed my life. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we started Almost 30 or right before we started Almost 30, you were talking about listening to the Ritual podcast and his show and just how interesting it was recommending episodes. And that was really like my first foray into podcasting. And yeah, he's... I I feel like we talk about him often and really look up to him and how he has carried himself throughout his evolution of his show. Um, And so today admittedly, we were so nervous at the start of the day. We're like, Rich is going to the studio. (laughs) Because it's a different situation when you're interviewing someone that you admire their work and you're a consumer of their work, but you're not like a fan. Yes. And I feel like because I had known about Rich Roll and the Rich Roll show when I didn't have a purpose or a confidence that I do have now. And so he was kind of like a guru for me. It was kind of like I had him on this pedestal. And so to come up and now be like, okay, now we have a successful podcast. We've been doing this for six years. We help other podcasters. It was very weird because it brought out that part of me that still saw him as like a guru Mm -hmm. or an expert or Mm -hmm. someone that like I was a fan of. Yes. I'm still a fan, but it's just a different energy when you admire someone as a peer and Mm -hmm. then when you're like a fan. Yes, completely. We interviewed his wife, Julie Pyatt. You should definitely check out that episode. Uh, she goes by Shri Mati. Um, but to have him here to, for this interview, I feel like all of the nerves kind of dissipated when he walked in because his presence is just so himself. He's he's very grounded. And I know that hasn't always been his story or experience, but he is just truly himself. And he makes anyone that comes into contact with him just feel really comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know? 
I was thinking that when we were in our interview, I was like, oh, he has great energy hygiene. Like yeah. very, very much in his own experience. Yes. You know, there's like an energetic of being worried about what other people are thinking or doing, but there's like a great energy hygiene of being in your own experiencing, being confident enough to tell your story. So if you came from Ritual's podcast, welcome. We're grateful to have you. I think this is going to be a really beautiful and hopefully unique conversation that we have together. We go into Rich's journey and the parts of it that we really wanted to pull threads on, like his marriage with Julie and their financial collapse. We talked about alcoholism as it relates to the sober curious movement. We talked about finding purpose and what that means. Mm -hmm. Can you find purpose? And we really picked apart the 12-step program in AA as it relates to a spiritual experience. Yeah, this conversation is super dynamic, but flowed so, so well. And um, it felt like he hadn't been asked some of these questions. So it was actually really enjoyable to kind of be so present where mm -hmm. he was- To get him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> but like, I, I could tell that he was just- you know, pausing at points and really just kind of feeling into what was true for him, which is refreshing because sometimes I think people can just kind of regurgitate everything they usually say on podcasts and he's, yeah, he's incredibly present. So it was a really fun, amazing conversation. Rich, thank you so much for coming in person here to the studio. I know leaving Malibu is not, not easy. I don't know if I'd do it. <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't would leave it. Malibu. And you'll also see our very pink studio. So if you're watching on YouTube or if you're on the internet, so we have Bless. a very pink studio. We're growing out of it. I was like, we haven't been able to update yet. We were like, Rich, is this okay? He's like, I'm uh, into it. I was having like um, anxiety, like silly anxiety about like, oh man, Rich Roll's coming into the, there's like gold leaf on the walls. Yeah, there's like a, a bright coral couch. I'm like, is he going to be okay? Mm -hmm, 100%. I'm like, relax. He's going to be all right. Um, and it was great. So thank you. Thank you. Make sure you tune into the Rich Roll podcast. It's an incredible, incredible show. Um, and make sure to listen to our episode with his wife, Julie Pyatt. Yes. You can go to richroll.com, Instagram, is Rich Roll and then youtube.com slash Rich Roll. And Rich has a few books. One is called Finding Ultra. It was his first book that he just updated. There's The Plant Power Way, which is plant-based recipes he did with Julie Pyatt, his lovely wife. And then there's a new book out called Voicing Change. He has volume one and volume two, where you can revisit the wisdom of some of the amazing guests that he's had on the show. It's a nice coffee table book. I'm actually going to get that from a coffee table. Thank you so much, Rich Roll. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. If you're new to, to almost 30, make sure you subscribe uh, so that all of our episodes every single week just drop into your inbox. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at almost30podcast. Go to almost30.com to learn more about us, the show, and other ways in which you can get involved in the community and your own personal growth. I am at Lindsay Simsick on Instagram. And I'm at It's Krista, and we'll see you on the other side. Bye. I want to tell you about a skincare brand that has been making clean and ultra effective skincare for over 25 years. You might know them. You're gonna love them. I promise you. Osea. They use seaweed as their product star ingredient and they're vegan and climate neutral certified. I absolutely love this brand. They are award-winning they have award-winning cleansers and serums and face moisturizers, and they're known for creating incredible body products. Let me tell you about my favorite product, probably of all time. 
the body oil. It's famous. You've probably seen it on TikTok, on social media. It is all over the place and for good reason. It is a part of my daily routine. After I shower, it makes your skin look healthy, smooth, nourished, and glowing. And it's a perfect addition to my body care product routine as summer approaches. If you're anything like me, once I put on the shorts, the skirts, the wraps, the dresses, the bathing suits, I want to make sure my skin just looks and feels amazing. And I love the quality too. So sometimes with body oils, it gets everywhere. The skin doesn't absorb them, but this body oil is so luxurious. I know you are going to be obsessed. They also have the body butter. So if you're more of a butter gal or guy, this is softening, nourishing, and has the most amazing citrus scent. It's clinically proven to moisturize skin for up to 72 hours. So this is for those of you out there that have really dry skin. A little goes a long way. So find your new skincare and body care favorites at oseamalibu.com and get a special discount just for you, our listeners of Almost 30. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with promo code ALMOST30 at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order, which I love when I order from Osea. Free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. You're going to want it all. I promise you. Go to oseamalibu.com, O-S-E-A malibu.com. Use the promo code ALMOST30. I'm so excited to have you. I actually met you at your book signing eight years ago in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Isn't that bizarre? I was living in New York City and I had just discovered podcasts and your podcast and Tim Ferriss were like my go-tos and they completely changed my life because mm. I was someone that was in the corporate world. I wanted to find my purpose and my passion and being able to like learn in the way of podcasts and being able to just be a fly on the wall for these conversations was so powerful for me. So I went to the Plant Power Way mm-hmm. book launch. Yeah, what was Brooklyn. it called? Power, uh, what was that place called? It that w- really cool It was venue. beautiful. It was like a, they had those steps. Powerhouse, something like that. Yes. I can't remember what it was yes. called. <laughs> I remember. It's so crazy because at the point where you're not creating, but you're admiring the creators, you're just, your perception of them is so different. So I met you and Julian was just so starry-eyed. And then now to have a podcast is such an interesting thing because you feel like, I feel like I'm a normal person and people listen to me. So I always wonder with you because you did hit your stride later in life and you were someone that had this idea of the way that your life was going to go through law and through this like path that was perceived to be the way. What does it feel like when people approach you where people feel like they know you or this like celebrity ideal they have of you? It's it's pretty surreal as as I think you can, you know, probably relate. <laughs> I never thought I would be a public facing person. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interactions are always really nice. And I think that's unique to the podcast space because mm-hmm. the relationship is so intimate. People are walking around, you know, with earbuds in. They're listening to you for hours and hours and hours. And so they they project this idea of uh, of a relationship mm-hmm. onto what they're hearing. Yes. And I know this to be the case because I've done it with you know people that I admire and listen to. Um, but because of that level of intimacy and honesty and authenticity, 
when people approach me on the street or in airports, you know, it doesn't happen so much in LA, but when I travel, it happens quite regularly. It's always really nice because they feel like they already know you. They're mm -hmm. seeing you again. Like, oh, hey, hey there's my friend that yes. I just haven't seen in a little while. I'm going to go say hi to him. Um, and I've never had, you know, weird experiences mm -hmm. for the most part, maybe an outlier weird thing here or there. But for the most part, it's always, it's always really nice and people are always... Um, careful to not be over mm -hmm. overly intrusive like mm -hmm. it's respectful yes. and so it's cool it's a little bit different now with kids though because yes. sometimes when I'm out with my kids um, I always thought oh this is cool like my kid gets to see that like what I do in the world is is <laughs> yeah, recognized cool. and valued mm -hmm. um, but I've changed my mind on that because they don't that's not the way that they see it they see it as an infringement on their time with you and a mm. distraction and so when my attention, diverts to, to talking to one of those people, like my kid will just be standing there, like, when is this gonna be over with? Like they're annoyed by it. Um, so I'm a little bit more protective when I'm with my children than mm -hmm. I used to be. Yeah. So funny, like as a parent, you're like, they're gonna think this is cool. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they you, think nothing's cool. You quickly cool. realize, like, yes. I always thought, like, I'm gonna be the cool dad. I always know what the cool music is. Yes. I'm up on the fashion trends. Like, there is no way that I'm ever gonna be like put out to pasture or past my <laughs> expiration date. And what you learn you. is it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. Like, you, yes. there is nothing that you can do yes. that they will think is is cool or or, or worthy of their yes. like appreciation. It just it's rigged that. that way, and it's it should be that way. Yeah. Yes. It's like yeah. kids remind you of kind of those ego moments, you know, yes. they really bring you back to presence. And yeah, I, I have to agree, you know, we've always had that experience where people are just kind mm -hmm. and it just feels um, like an extension of the intimacy that we create on the podcast, which is so, so nice. When you started the pod, you know, for us, it did feel like we were kind of meeting uh, a level of our mm -hmm. purpose. What did it feel like when you, when you started the Ritual podcast? I mean, there wasn't a lot of a forethought or intention. Um, I've been doing this for coming up on 10 years at this point. So I certainly wasn't one of the first podcasts. Podcasting had been around for a number of years. I think like 2007 or mm -hmm. six or something like that is when it really began. I started mine in late 2012. So although, you know, it, the medium had existed for a number of years, it was really a wide open space where there wasn't a lot of super compelling content. A lot of comedians had podcasts, mm -hmm. you know, Joe Rogan, Adam mm -hmm. Carolla, Kevin Smith, people like that. Um, but nobody was doing anything all that interesting in the health and wellness space yet. Um, certainly not in the fitness space or just in the kind of general growth expansion space. And I felt like maybe I have something to say about this or I could contribute and I know a couple cool people. And I'd fallen in love with podcasting way before most people had, because when I was training for these crazy ultra endurance races, I just spent a lot of time alone on my bike or running. And I didn't want to do it in total silence all the time. And I couldn't just listen to music. So I discovered podcasts and this was pre-iPhone. So you had to really want to listen to a podcast. <laughs> if you like, I had download to it. download a whole bunch of them from my desktop computer and then bounce them to one of those big old clunky white yes. iPods. Yes. And then, you know, find, you know, rig a pocket to, you know, carry that around with me. Um, but I just loved it. And I was confused why more people weren't listening to podcasts because it was so nourishing to me. And I just thought this was this is like unbelievable. And I would talk about it to friends 
And they'd just be like, yeah, I'm not, you know, it's like, who cares, whatever. Like, no, I couldn't get anybody excited about it. But because I'd listened to thousands of hours of podcasts before I started mine, I felt like, you know, I, I had kind of figured out how to do this. So when I had the inkling to begin one, it was in the, it was in the aftermath of Finding Ultra, my first book coming out, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And it just felt like a cool, creative experiment. Now, when people start podcasts, they have a whole strategy. They bank mm-hmm. a whole bunch. They know how to release like a couple. There's like a whole thing that didn't exist back then. Like I just used my stepson's microphones because they're musicians. I spent a day trying to figure out how you get these things up on iTunes, which is pretty clunky. It's not that easy. And then thought, well, let's give it a try. And Julie and I sat down in a warehouse in Hawaii and recorded one. And when we were done, I thought that was fun. Like, let's do it again tomorrow. I mean, it was really nothing more than that. And ever since, like, you know, just continue to build and the show has grown gradually. There weren't any, you know, huge, crazy viral moments or anything like that. It's just been persistently showing up for it week after week after week. I've never missed a week. And, you know, it's grown into the thing that it is today. And the ecosystem and the audience has, you know, kind of come along for the ride. Like now podcasting is obviously very different than it was back then. There's a, it's a whole crazy industry that I would have never expected. And it certainly wasn't, you know, in my mind that this would be a vocation or something that could support my family. That's just been an added bonus of just following something that I was curious about and that I felt passionate about. What did you feel like at that time? Did you feel like you had a purpose? Did you feel like you were looking for your purpose? Because I'm always so curious about that path when, you know, we kind of lose sight of what we thought was our purpose, which is what something, you know, that you did. And then you're in this space of looking for purpose, but it's not what you're perceiving it's going to be. Like the podcast turned into something that was very much a part of your purpose, but it wasn't something you were searching for. So along that path for people that want to find purpose in their life and want to find a life that feels meaningful and feels like they can be themselves and they could be and express parts of them, what advice would you give for people looking to Yeah, find I mean, I have a lot to say about this. I mean, I think that purpose is really a function of engaging with your curiosity and following your instincts and your intuition. I bristle at conversations typically around purpose and passion and things like that because those words, I think, are very triggering for a lot Mm -hmm. of people because I think most people are walking around thinking, I don't know what my purpose is or I don't have a passion in my life. And they scroll through Instagram or TikTok and see all these people living these wonderful lives. And it just makes people feel bad about themselves. And and I know what that feels like. I've been in that place. Mm -hmm. Um, So... The way that I think about it is, first of all, it's not a binary thing. Like, I don't think that you have one singular purpose or there is one passion, you know, out there waiting for you to discover it. I think we can have many different purposes throughout many different phases of our lives. You know, I've been around for a little while. I'm quite a bit older than you guys. And what I've discovered along the way as somebody who has been in career paths that were not a fit for me, somebody who has had financial challenges and challenges with addiction and been in some pretty dark places. And now as somebody who feels very fulfilled in what they're doing, um, the purpose that I feel in my life and the passion that I'm, that I'm privileged to be able to engage in every day has really been a function uh, of, of the very thing I mentioned earlier, which is getting to know yourself, like doing the inside work so that your instincts 
are true, right? I think a lot of people are reacting impulsively to looping patterns in their mind and deluding themselves into thinking that they're 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 paying attention to their gut or their instincts when in reality they're not because they're disconnected from that and they haven't like excavated their pain and their trauma and done that kind of um, work to get honest with themselves and kind of clear a lot of that garbage out. Um, so I think, you know, whether it's therapy or meditation or 12 step or whatever your modality, like being engaged in that on some level uh, with, with great intention is critical in this journey towards unlocking greater purpose and fulfillment, fulfillment in your life. And when you're on that path, it's about being present with yourself and paying attention to um, what your emotions are signaling to you, um, being aware of, of the things that you're curious about. And when you get struck with a certain, you know, kind of impulse to um, explore something or, you know, engage in a, a certain activity to really honor that. It's not about up and quitting your job and saying, I'm following my passion, but just finding time and energy in your daily life on a micro level to cultivate and, and, and you, know, you know, do some gardening around those things that you're interested in. And when you do that and you make that a practice, in my experience, the universe will provide opportunities to deepen that relationship. And that then leads to other things. And if you're self-aware enough and aware of your environment enough, there will be opportunities for you to further explore that. So it's not about lightning bolt moments mm -hmm. or overnight successes. It's really about the tiny choices that you make every single day that move the needle in your life imperceptibly. You know, every everything that I've accomplished is the result of things that I've been, you know, working on for decades, not months or, or, or years. And so I'm always encouraging people to be gentle on themselves and to be patient and, to not, you know, set themselves up against some calendar to discover these things. And I, you know, I trust and assume that your audience is, you know, quite a bit younger than I am. Um, and if there was a lesson that I would give my younger self, it would be to, to be patient, you know, be more patient. And I think we all measure ourselves against our peers and this person is doing that. And here I am back here and I'm losing or I'm missing out or, you know, life has passed me by and, you know, we, we tend to think of life as being short and I guess it is, but it's also long. I say that all know? the time. Yeah, I'm like, like, life is short, but it's, I sometimes I'm like, it's also so long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, when I, when I was 31, I was in a treatment center thinking my life was completely over and that every thing that I had worked for in my life had been destroyed and I couldn't see a way through that. So, the fact that I'm sitting here at 55, I feel like I'm just beginning and engaging with life on a, you know, uh, on a level of, on a, on a playing field that I never imagined for myself, you know, tells me that anything is possible. And, you know, the things that I've accomplished, I'm not that special. I just worked hard at certain things and, you know, had the courage to, to do that inside work. And it has, you know, created a foundation upon which I could build something meaningful for myself and, and hopefully for other people. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you said, you know, it's not the lightning bolt moment. I feel like we have been trained, whether it's by social media or just the world in which we're kind of growing up in, to look for these like quick hits of, you know, dopamine or serotonin or yeah, like just kind of those happy chemicals of like, okay, 
I'm going to know when it's the thing. I'm going to know it's going to be this moment that completely changes my life. And it's in those more mundane moments. And it's in those moments where you're showing up consistently that I feel like that's where the the needle moves and the butterfly effect takes place. I'm curious, you know, in those moments where you thought, this is it. Like, I don't really see the light from here. I don't see the way up from here. What was your, whether it was conscious or unconscious, like practice in the moment to be able to, in a way, and we've been talking about like holding the pose long enough to receive kind of the next insight or next um, feeling of, okay, this is kind of what I'm, I'm feeling is the next right step. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the tools that I rely on and that I have cultivated uh, all come from being in recovery and what I've learned as a result of being a, a member of AA, 12-step. And one of the many core principles is this idea of acceptance and surrender, uh, which is a very difficult ephemeral idea to grasp, especially as somebody like myself, who's very driven and ambitious and type A at times, the idea of surrender smacks of surrender of like of giving up, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't give up. Like I continue to work until I make it work. But surrender. What surrender really means is developing a healthy understanding of of what you can control and what you can't, and realizing that in truth we only can control very few things: the behaviors that we you know that we engage in. Uh, the way that we respond to the world, what comes out of our mouth, what we put into our mouth. Like, it's basically it. You can't control other people. You can't control your environment. You can't control situations. And as a recovering alcoholic, like that letting go of all of that provides a great deal of relief. And it provides a basis for, for being present with yourself and being honest with what it is that you can, can and cannot do or exert control over. Um, so in those moments of confusion or um, despair or not knowing what decision to make or what direction to you know move forward in, it's about being present with yourself and then saying, well, what is the next best thing that I can do right now? Maybe it's to take a nap. Maybe it's to eat a healthy meal. Maybe it's to journal. Tiny little things like that um, that that in the moment seem frivolous and like bullshit, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but adding those up, over months and years, uh, I think is really the only way to get clarity on those things. And you're absolutely correct. It's not lightning bolt moments. It is the mundane. It's all about the mundane. And you know, you can look at my story or Google it, and it looks like there are these lightning bolt moments, like these inflection points where everything changed overnight. But the lived experience of those moments were just Oh, here's a little thing. Like, I'm going to pay attention to that and I'm going to make this tiny decision, you know, tomorrow morning. And then I'm going to make another tiny decision. And then five years later, it looks like this huge turning point in my life, but that's not what it felt like in Mm -hmm. the moment. And it's interesting. One of those moments I know in your story is talking about going up the stairs. Mm -hmm. When you were like, I was going up the stairs and you were so unhealthy that it was like a wake up moment. And we even had a conversation with someone yesterday. She's like a spiritual teacher. And one of her moments was like in bed at night and a cockroach crawled over her foot and it became her spiritual awakening moment. But you were talking a little bit about healing and doing the internal work. And I think, you know, my perception is that in our community, which is mostly women, that's talked about quite a bit. 
Do you feel like in as a man and in, in your community and your experience that talking about doing the internal work is as popular or as normalized or as open? It's much more normalized now than it was when I got sober, I yeah. can tell you that. And that's in no small part to podcasts led by a lot of men who are willing to be vulnerable and open and discuss their foibles and setbacks and shameful moments. Yeah. Uh, I think that creates a permissive space for more men to engage in these kinds of discussions. To be sure, it's still the domain of the feminine for the most part. And most dudes just are raised in an environment and in a culture where certain expectations are set about what it means to be masculine. And packed into that, of course, is being stoic and not you know, demonstrating your emotions and not burdening other people with your problems and you know, holding on, holding the strong face and just taking care of business. But I think we're seeing a dismantling of that. And I have discovered for myself and, and in working with many, many other people over the years that when you, when you have the courage to be vulnerable and it takes courage to be vulnerable, I think that's a very courageous act to admit your wrongs or to find somebody to discuss your pain, um, that that is really not only a super healthy thing to do, but begins to repair whatever it is that's broken inside of you so that you can become more fully actualized and grow into a healthy version of masculinity that, um, that you know, can, can own your place in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like the actual willingness to be witnessed in that too is so healing. I, I feel like we've kind of experienced that within the community of women where I kind of had a thing with like female friendships before and just to be witnessed in a vulnerable state was so healing. So I can imagine that for men too, to feel like they don't always need to like hold right. mm-hmm. and be a certain way and to actually be witnessed as who they are. Well, can- one thing, but sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but one further thought on that. I think that, that, you know, a lot of men are locked down and they're holding uh, a certain level of shame, right? Like, oh, I've, cause we're all imperfect. Like we've all done things we're not proud of. And what I learned being in, in AA is over many years, watching people get up in front of groups of people, big and small, and just tell their story with all its warts and everything like that mm-hmm. and not be judged, mm-hmm. but rather embraced for the courage of the telling um, is incredibly empowering. And beyond that, really, you know, connects people to each other because you're getting the real person. And I think through seeing that so many times and then learning how to do that myself creates uh, a distance between who you are, like who is, you know, rich role versus like, I'm the person who did these other things and then worked hard to, you know, transcend them and, you know, repair the wreckage of my past. Mm -hmm. It's like parts and internal family systems. Mm -hmm. It's like the true self, the true rich. And then the parts of you that did this, like who is the hurt part of you that did this situation that you're sort of talking about. Yeah. It's so weird. Just growing up and learning about AA and the 12 step program, you're like, this is profound. Like I just had ideas about it growing up. I didn't know what it was, but how spiritual it is. It's a spiritual program. Yes. Uh, and that can be off-putting for new people who get freaked out about God because I think a lot of people with addiction issues yeah. uh, have suffered trauma at the hands of mm-hmm. you know their church or whatever denomination that they were reared in. Um, so it 
it can be problematic. It's not a religious program. It's certainly a spiritual program. But yes, it is, it is divinely inspired in so many ways. I mean, the fact that there's no central governing body and that it has continued to grow and thrive for you know, decade upon decade. And the principles and the steps that are, you know, that are part and parcel of, of what it is to be you know, a member of this group and be in active recovery are tools that I think would benefit anybody. And I think you know, that's a broader conversation around what is addiction and who is an addict or an alcoholic versus a normal person. And I've learned that, that we need to define that, that condition more broadly. Like mm. we think of alcoholics as just you know, gutter drunks and mm-hmm. addicts as you know, people who have a needle stuck in their arm. But I think on some level, we're all addicts. And I think you know, these devices, these supercomputers that we all carry around in our pocket is, is helping us all realize that, that you know, despite our best intentions, we find ourselves compelled to engage in behavior that doesn't serve us on some level. So whether it's the inability to stop scrolling or continuing to get into a relationship with the same kind of guy or woman that isn't in your best interest, whatever it is, like we all have our own kind of cyclical you know, addictive patterns in our life that we feel powerless to alter or change. And I think thinking about addiction in that context makes the step, the, the tools of 12-step, um, in my mind, like applicable and beneficial for, for anybody. I mean, basically, you're asked to, you know, engage in this idea of surrender and you do an inventory, like a, an inventory of your resentments and a sexual inventory. And you get really clear on what your recurring negative behavior patterns and loops are so you can begin to de- deconstruct them and you learn how to make amends to the people that you've hurt. We've all hurt people, right? And that, when you when you clear all that stuff out, there's a sense of well-being and wholeness that starts to take root in you where you feel like you're the person that you always wanted to be. And you have this sense that you can, you know, continue to grow into that aspirational self. We've heard over and over um, just the power of AA. And I'm curious about your um, journey to sobriety. A lot of women in our community, people in our community are sober curious. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to talk about just how, how your relationship with alcohol and now without alcohol has really amplified your connection with your soul, spiritual journey, because I think for us, I am sober curious as far as, you know, a couple a month and she is sober. So it has absolutely like just opened a channel Mm. of sorts. And I'm curious, like your thoughts as you've navigated. Yeah. Well, first of all, I was a mess. <laughs> like, like a no total choice. disaster. Ours is like, we'll stop. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, was, it, was, it was strongly suggested by a lot of people in my life that mm-hmm. this was not working for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was a kid who, who was sort of awkward and insecure and had challenges making friends and didn't really, how to, didn't really know how to like navigate socially in the world. And as a result, was kind of a loner. Um, I discovered swimming at a young age and that was like a safe place for me where I learned a lot about life and, you know, how to, um, you know, achieve goals and things like that. Um, but it was also a defense mechanism that, that on some level, I suppose, 
um, prevented me from learning social tools that would be, you know, valuable later in life. Um, so when I went 3,000 miles away to college, I just, because I was a goody two-shoes in high school. Like all I you was doing say. was swimming <laughs> and studying. Swimmer, lawyer. And got into all the <laughs> fancy good. colleges and had a lot of judgment about, you know, people that were out partying. Um, and then I went to college and I just went insane, you know, mm. and just partied like a rock star and lost interest in the more aspirational things that used to be my North Pole. And, uh, and it was just kind of a slow decline. Like I knew early on that I had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but you can get away with a lot of stuff when you're young. And yes. you're just, oh, yeah. you know, even if you're the last person to leave the party and the person who passes out and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's like, you can laugh it off because a lot of people are doing it then. But as you get older, it becomes less humorous and, you know, the people that you used to hang out with are now building lives and they're not available. And you start hanging out with lower companions until it's just you in your bedroom alone drinking. And it becomes very um, lonely and desperate and not sexy at all. Um, so for me, it was many years to get to that point um, before, uh, you know, I became like a daily round the clock drinker and I was getting, collecting DUIs and became the guy who couldn't show up when he said he was going to show up. And my friends, you know, were, you know, doing other things in life and didn't have time for me anymore. And my family got to the point where they didn't want anything to do with me. It got really bad um, to the point where, I really had nowhere left to turn. I was sleeping on a bare mattress in a shitty apartment with no furniture and was about to get fired from my job and ended up in a treatment center where I stayed for a hundred days and was told early on, like after I was honest for the first time about how I was actually living that, you know, if I didn't figure it out, I was probably gonna die. And that my case of alcoholism was pretty advanced, like along the lines of what they typically see in like 65 year old lifelong drinkers. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because I was this person who thought myself to be smart and upwardly mobile and very privileged and had all these incredible opportunities that I had squandered. And I was very ashamed of that. And I realized like, I'm in a mental institution. like. All my thinking, me thinking I'm this smart person ended me up here. There's something wrong with my thinking and I need to get this right because I don't ever wanna come back here again. And I took recovery incredibly seriously. It was my number one priority. It remains my number one priority. But at that time, it was like 100 days in rehab, two meetings a day, commitments, sponsor, steps, like the whole thing. Like, yeah, I had a job when I came back, but my real job was creating a foundation of sobriety. And that has paid off in helping me to, uh, you know, not only just repair all my relationships and become like a responsible member of society again, but to really get whole with myself. And so in thinking about people who are sober curious, maybe you don't relate to that because my story is extreme, although it's pretty mundane in the context of AA. I mean, there are, most people have much worse, you know, tales of woe to tell. Um, but I've seen people come back from the depths of despair to live amazing lives. Like it's really miraculous. But I just think that, you know, the lesson for somebody who's sober curious in my case, because I, I'm not here to give advice, I can just share my experience. My relationship with alcohol was so interwoven with my insecurities and my sense of less than and my inability to 
just be comfortable in my own skin so that I could go to a dinner or a cocktail party or walk into a store and look somebody in the eye and ask a question or say hello, particularly with respect to the opposite sex. Like I could not talk to a girl unless I had at least, you know, three or four beers in me. And that became like uh, a crutch in that if I wasn't drinking, I became completely incapacitated to like be a social person. And so alcohol taught me, like I, it, I have to say, like it's, it, it, it was the solution to my problem. Like it works, right? So I could go to a party and talk to a girl and flirt and tell a joke and feel like, hey, I'm having fun. And like, this is the way I'm supposed to feel all the time. This is the way I always wanted to feel until it turns on you and it gets dark. Um, so to the sober cu curious person, like be honest with yourself. Like what is the alcohol doing for you that you feel like you can't do yourself? What is it that it's masking? What, what is the emotional pain that it's covering up that you don't wanna look at? Because the real opportunity is to do that inside work. And when you remove the alcohol, in my case, losing my best friend, I became a live wire of all kinds of confusing emotions that suddenly were percolating mm. up that were forcing me to have to reckon with them. And I didn't have any tools for doing that because sobriety isn't just abstinence, it's, 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 it's emotional sobriety. It's like learning how to manage your emotions and create new, uh, you know, new behavior patterns to manage that sense of dis-ease within so that you can grow into a person who's truly comfortable in their own skin. And, and you know, it, it's a lot of work, but I am comfortable in my own skin now. I don't have to, when I walked in here, I, I didn't have to be scared, you know, of, <laughs> of having to talk to you. Like, mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I can do this, you yeah. know? Yeah. But there was a time where, you know, if I had to walk, I, I would have been terrified. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and I think because alcohol is so, you know, widely approved of, nobody bats an eye at it, even when people are drinking excessively. It's sort mm -hmm. of like, okay, you know, yeah, maybe that person drinks a little bit too much, but who cares? So really look at that, you know, is it in service of you or is it um, a barrier between the person you really wanna become and the person you currently are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like with drinking and then with the phone, like I feel like all of us know we're addicted, but don't wanna admit it to each other because mm -hmm. then we have to do something about it. And yeah, we're God like, forbid. Yes, yeah. honestly, it's like, <laughs> I remember your episode with Cal Newport. We had Cal on too, was mm. like so profound in talking about that, that addiction. And your story sort of reminds me of that because I feel like we're all at this precipice of being so addicted to our phones. How do you sort of reckon with like, this is something that I think about a lot, being people that have podcasts, we're in people's ears all the time. We are in conversation with people, but we also want our audience to listen to their own heart and their own gut and their own intuition. So how do you reckon with being someone that like is very influential on in people's lives, but also wanting them to follow their own path? Mm, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think I would begin by saying that I wish when I was in my twenties or early thirties that there were podcasts out there mm -hmm. where I could just learn about other mm -hmm. people's lives or listen to somebody who was doing something that I aspired to do and hear them talk about how they made it happen. Like what an incredible gift. Because um, that didn't exist when I was coming up and perhaps I would have saved myself, you know, 10 years of chasing the wrong thing. So I think that, you know, podcasting, audio in general uh, plays a, a huge role and should be respected. But 
be wary of making anybody your guru. You know what I, you know what I mean? Um, it's, it's really about you and you, and you can inform yourself by listening to lots of different voices, taking it all in, trying to figure what's, what's, you know, what you listen to could be of service to you, but ultimately you have to make that decision for yourself. And so it's a broader question about how you're living your life. Are you living it for yourself or are you living it to figure out how to fit into somebody else's uh, expectation of who they think you should be? Because I've been that guy too, and I know what that's like. And when you're doing it, you don't realize that you're doing it. You think you're doing it for yourself or it's what you want because you haven't done enough work to realize like, oh, I actually made this choice because this is really what my parents want to do. Or if I do this, um, then I can, you know, I can afford to lease that car or whatever it is. So I think it's, it's, again, it always goes back to the inside work. If you're not doing enough inside work, you can be overly influenced by something that you hear in a podcast and think that you're making a conscious decision for yourself when you're really just being reactive. Mm. Yes, 100%. And you become a better gatekeeper of what is for you and what is not for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like you or us like you love to listen and just soak up information, but there's often times where I'm like, hmm, that's not for me. Right. You know, and I think that's kind of the the point of inflection as far as like really being able to attune to this centered feeling of like, oh yeah, I, I do, I do recognize when it feels resonant to me and when it's not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard to do in the world that we live in now because there's so much information. We're scrolling so much. We're getting little flicks of everyone's life constantly. So it's really, it's that practice of yeah. tuning back in. On top of that, I think it creates a paralysis. We were mm. talking before the podcast yes. about how many self-help books there are, you know. So true. So you can spend all your time reading self-help books and listening to podcasts and there is some kind of brain chemistry at play that convinces you that you've actually done something when you actually haven't done shit. Yes. You haven't done anything, right? So ultimately you have to take an action uh, rather than delude yourself because you're listening to all of this or reading all of this material that it's moving you forward. Like you scroll through Instagram, you see an inspirational quote. You're like, that's an amazing quote. And then you feel like you accomplished something. Like you didn't do anything, I think right? about like those so, all the time. Yeah. yeah. I reshared it. Right, well, yeah, but, but what did you actually yeah. do? You know, and getting honest yes. with yourself about that. So it's about filtering that information. Mm-hmm. And I think journaling is a good practice for developing clarity, especially when you don't know, like I know for myself when I'm not sure how I feel about something, like I'm not immediately, like I'm not a person who, who hears something and immediately knows how I feel about it. I have to write about it. And in the writing, my clarity is mm-hmm. revealed. So I think that's a good practice, but ultimately that can be paralysis too, because you have to translate that clarity that's developed through practices like journaling and turn them into like, what is the action that you're actually taking out in the world? Mm -hmm. Like, are you picking up the phone and making that call? Are you making the appointment to do the thing or, you know, rewriting your resume or whatever it is? Like all of it has to translate. Otherwise you're living in some level of of denial, I think. Mm -hmm. I always think about that with like the quotes on Instagram or the graphics. I'm like this, quote would take a lifetime to understand and learn and apply. And we just are fed so much of the personal growth, self-development information all the time that it's like you read it and you do feel like, okay, I read this quote 
and then you kind of move on. But so much of it is lifetimes of like work to learn and to apply all of these things. Something that I have always loved about your journey and what you share, especially as it relates to Julie, and I always felt was so fascinating for me because I saw my parents who really struggled on the conversation of money. And so when you went through your financial collapse, just having Julie as that anchor for you and having her as that like, you know, that pillar has always been so inspiring to me. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the financial collapse and the importance of having someone that was holding the post for Mm -hmm. your family. I mean, incredibly important. I I would not have survived that period of our life without her conviction and strength. You know, and I just, I can't overstate that. So for many years, um, we went through, you know, an incredible period of financial hardship. And the irony being that we live in a beautiful home, and but we couldn't pay for it. Like we weren't paying our mortgage. So on the outside, it kind of looked like we Very LA. had everything going on. <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile, we had, we had a couple cars getting repossessed. It got to the point where we couldn't even pay the waste management service, the $80 to keep our trash cans. So they took our trash cans away and we didn't have the money to get them back. So we would put garbage in the back of this beat up minivan that we had and drive to like look for bins, like look for, um, you know, those big, big industrial bins around mm-hmm. that we could dump our garbage in. So our, the minivan smelled like garbage. Uh, wow. You know, we had to go, you know, we, are, we didn't have a washer and dryer. Like just, it was not great. And as a dude who is, who has children, and is living in this home, like that, there's a lot of shame that I harbored over that. Like I'm supposed to be the provider and I'm the one who went to the fancy school and was this lawyer. And now I'm out like riding my bike and doing these other things that don't seem to make sense. And even to the point where I got a book deal and was paid a pretty good amount of money to write that book. But when, you're, when you have a household of six people and those checks come you know, once every six months or something, because yeah. they pay those advances out over time, like it wasn't enough to pay our bills. And even in the wake of the book coming out and doing well, I still didn't have a career path where we were making any kind of consistent money. Like it didn't make sense. It wasn't rational. And so my faith was tested many times. Uh, my shame was like, you know, just on the surface all the time. And there were many moments where I would say to Julie, like, this is insane. And everybody's telling us we're insane also. Like there's the cacophony of like, Mm. you know, your friends and your colleagues who are witnessing this car crash and saying, what are you doing? Julie, why are you married to this guy? What is he doing? And and I would say, "I, I should just go back and find a job in a law firm. Like I cannot tolerate the pain of this situation one day longer. And she would always say like, that's the past. We have a different future. We've come this far. And we just have to have faith that something will work out and we will be provided for. And that's, you know, easy to say and and hard to live. And so it was really challenging. It was very difficult, but it was her strength and her conviction and, and her deep, profound faith in the unseen um, that gave me the strength to show up another day and continue to pull the threads. And it's not that I wasn't doing anything. I'm sending out emails and I'm trying to get a speaker, get anything that could bring any kind of money in. And the irony being that now, like, I mean, within all of that shame was also an unhealthy knowing within myself that I would never be financially solid. 
like out of college, even when I had good jobs, like I was running up credit card debt and as an alcoholic, you don't pay attention to finance. Like I, I was always in debt. I was always behind. I was always late to pay bills my entire adulthood. And so I didn't have a history of being solvent or a sense of my own innate capacity to be you know, financially healthy. Um, and I didn't believe that that was possible in my life. Um, and it took a lot of work to overcome. I think that's a, a lot of people, like they just feel like, well, I'm not worthy of making money. I'm, I'm personally not worthy of it. And it eludes my capacity to, to manage this. And so we developed this poverty consciousness that I, I definitely had. And it took a lot of work to overcome that. Um, and many, many years, again, it goes back to the patience thing. And all the evidence was that I was correct. Like, look, I can't even pay to keep these trash bins here. Like, you're a piece of shit, you know? And I would beat myself up. And it was always back to this faith piece. It was always back to Julie's strength. It was always back to doubling down on the recovery work and the 12 steps and being very active in that program that kept me alive and getting out of bed in the morning and just putting one foot in front of the other like having this belief that we were, we didn't go through all of that just to be completely decimated because our intentions were true and we were working hard. And, and that belief allowed us to continue a lot longer, I think than most people. And it, it's just, it's crazy now because I'm making more money than I ever thought possible. It's just banana. Like I never did any of this stuff for money. I've never been motivated by money. I've just followed this thing that, that, I find valuable and other people seem to find value in and I'm being rewarded for it now mm -hmm. on a level that I never thought possible. But I promise you that I was the person who thought I'm never gonna have a dime in my life and was deeply, deeply ashamed of that. Did you know that the drugs we take to manage period cramps were invented in the 1950s and exclusively tested on men? <laughs> what? It's literally outrageous that there hasn't been more innovation when it comes to periods. Deloon is changing that with dietitian formulated solutions that relieve our symptoms while actually supporting cycle health. Because our cycles affect every aspect of our wellness, period pain, mood, sleep, skin, metabolism, energy, and more. I, I don't know about you, but you know, some some months I'm like, oh my gosh, like everything has to stop, but it really can't <laughs> because I'm experiencing you know, really bad cramps or headaches, fatigue, you, bloating, you name it. I've really tried a lot of things. And while I think I've gotten most of my symptoms under control, it doesn't mean they still don't happen and kind of disrupt my flow. So I was really excited to find Deloon and recommend it to a lot of my friends and they have been absolutely loving it. I was talking to a friend the other day that experienced like really, really bad periods, cramps and just all these symptoms. And she was so happy uh, to try Deloon. She's noticed that her symptoms have subsided. They don't last as long. They're not as intense and she can really just be in her life, which is really nice. So Deloon Nutritional Solutions are dietitian formulated to work with your cycle health, not against it. It'll help you all month long while also relieving your cramps and PMS during your period. Deloon creates effective drug-free supplements for period cramps, PMS, and optimal cycle health. So you can get the relief you need naturally, which I'm all about, and start feeling like your best self. 
So if you want high potency, fast acting supplements for your period cramps, PMS, and really getting your cycle health in its prime top condition, like 92% of their customers report that relief, try to loon. Leave bad periods behind and start the new year off with 23% off. Go to cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. If Deloon isn't the right match for you, your money back is guaranteed. That's cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. If you are investing in things like beauty regimens and really good food for your body, but you're not investing in the nourishment for your mind like therapy, I highly, highly, highly recommend that as your next step to just optimal well-being. Um, I personally feel that therapy has changed my life. I've been in therapy for three years. Right now I go every other week and it is just a grounding cord in my life and a great place for me to process, to feel, to just understand the truth of what's happening, to really peel back the layers on my experience and what I'm learning, I could not recommend enough. I always recommend BetterHelp to people because it's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with a therapist. So if you don't want to see anybody on camera or If you don't want to see anybody in person, this is for you. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours, which is great. And if you're not feeling your therapist, they make it super easy to change. Almost 30 listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash almost 30. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30 for 10% off your first month. Amazing. Go right now to betterhelp.com slash almost 30. I just think it's so powerful to have that experience with a partner where they see something in you that you have never or just haven't recently felt within yourself. And to have that constantly reinforced and reflected is just so powerful. And I just, you know, I find your relationship, what I know of it, which I know is merely podcast episodes and and, and sections of books, but... Um, to be so uh, refreshing in the sense that you both are very, very much individuals and cultivate an intimacy that is, from my perspective, not codependent. And you allow each other to grow and evolve and progress in the ways in which your souls are meant to without holding each other back for fear of... Mm -hmm moving on or evolving past. So I'm just curious, like from your experience, what that's been like to be with someone like Julie Pyatt. Yeah, I mean, I just feel so blessed that I found the right person and we are very different. The crucible that we were in, I think would have blew apart most marriages. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it brought us closer together and our family closer together. And that took a lot of work because the pressures were so severe. But Julie has this gift for being able to to identify the potential within another and to hold that space and that belief in that person's ability to actualize that thing, even when that person can't see it. And she, she has done that for me. She does that for our kids. She does that with other people that she works for. 
And it's incredibly empowering because I think most people would just say, get your shit together and come and talk to me when you figured it out, but I don't have time for you right now. Um, so for her to be able to hold, hold that, I think requires a lot of strength and makes her a very unique person in, in that regard. Um, and yeah, we are very different. We complement each other because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wired, you know, I'm like logical and practical and organized and methodical. Whereas, you know, if you, all you have to do is look at her desk and my desk. And I've said this on the podcast, like everything is perfect. Like my pencils are all perfectly aligned and everything like that. And hers is a tornado. And I'm like, you should see or look at our, our like laptops, you know, home screens. And it's like, hers is like a billion documents. And I was like, how do you find anything? Like how I could not, or open our refrigerator and it's a mess. And I'm like, how do you live this way? I don't understand it. But she is able to, you know, she she finds, she's interested in what's most important. Those things aren't important. Mm. And she she's doing a lot of things at once. Whereas I'm like, I do this and then I do this and then I do this. Um, and I think you need a little bit of both of that, you know, to make things work. And and it's not that we don't fight. Like we, we because we're so different, we'll butt up against each other. Um, but our arguments have a very short half-life because we both have the skills to work through what it is we're actually in conflict over and get to the other side of it and walk away without any kind of, you know, emotional residue, which I think is really important too. Very it's like, it's not yeah. about not fighting. It's about like learning how to fight properly and developing the language skills, the presence, the emotional intelligence to know how to resolve conflict. Mm -hmm. How long do you think it took you to learn that in your relationship? I mean, I, I'm not saying I have it figured out. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm still What's learning. What's the thing you say? Yeah. yeah, honestly, I was like, what are the exact phrases? Well, I mean, one thing is, is you know, never storm away in the middle of a fight. Like yeah. I've mm -hmm. learned, to, we, I'll, I just will not leave and I won't let her leave until we sit there and we get all the way through it to the other side, no wow. matter how long that takes. That's been really instrumental. And wow. that's a that's a, like a very tactical, mm, good yep. takeaway for anybody. Because you're when things get hot and you feel like you're out of control, you want to just storm out, right? And maybe there are instances where that's appropriate because you don't want to blow up and say the thing you can't take back. Um, so there's some work that has to go into being the person who won't do that who can just sit in the discomfort um, and find a way to calm yourself and you know work through the dilemma, the problem to get to the other side. Yeah, it's that co-regulation. And that's what I realized even in my relationship. It's like we would regulate outside of being together. So we would kind of have the fight and then go away and then regulate ourselves, either him by himself or me with friends. And then we'd come back together already regulated. Mm -hmm. And you're missing so much intimacy when you're regulating outside of your container and your relationship. And it's like, how can you feel safe enough to stay and regulate together? Sure. The problem with that though, and you probably have experienced this, is when you when you separate and you each go to your friend group, yep. your friend group's getting one side of the story. Oh, and they're gonna tell you how right you are. He's terrible. Yes. How could he do that yes. to you? You need, yes. and then, and so you get armed up with yes. all of this, all of this support that mm -hmm. is really, you know, perhaps not completely yes. helpful. Completely agree. Because then you can come back and each side is like, well, uh -huh. so and so told yes. me this. And, and you could even hear like if I'll start talking and it comes out it's not my voice. Like in a fight, I can hear someone else's words even come out and it sounds different. 
You know, the words <laughs> kind of sound different coming out of your mouth. And yeah, so we're working on not really doing that because it can be... Right. It can be unhelpful for the relationship and then you're not really showing the true you and by staying. With having kids, you know, you have four beautiful kids and your relationship, how are you sort of modeling to them a real life and realness and truth? And that sometimes is messy and hard and doesn't look perfect. And it's like the everyday granular unsexy stuff. And then also like the ideal life that you would want them to see and experience. Mm. I think it's it's a combination of transparency and honesty, like not trying to shield them from challenging moments uh, or difficulties that we're trying to weather, but um, bringing them into that equation uh, to, to some degree, depending upon how old they are while also simultaneously making sure that they feel secure and taken care of. I think the mistake with transparency and honesty is it can make a kid feel unsafe. Like these people don't know what's going on. <laughs> like I'm gonna have to fend for myself because yes. they don't have my back. A hundred percent. So they have to know that, that not only do you have their back, that their needs are gonna get met and their needs are a priority. But within that construct, assuming that that is locked in, it's okay to be like, I don't know the answer to this, or we're having this issue. Like my parent, the way I was, I think we all kind of parent in opposition to the way our parents, you know, mm. parented us because we look, oh, they didn't do this and they, I'm going to do the, and then we swing the pendulum way too far in the other direction. But for example, like my parents never talked about money. So I never learned how to balance a checkbook or what it means to have a credit card or, you know, what is a mortgage? Like I, I don't, you know, I never learned any of that. <laughs> and certainly you don't learn it in school. So then you go out in the world, you make all these mistakes. So, you know, with our kids, it's like, well, here's here's kind of where we're at. We got to watch it for the next couple of weeks because, you know, we're not getting paid until this date. And so we're not going to do Postmates and Ubers and we're going to go to Trader Joe's and we're not going to go to Whole Foods for then. And that's just the way it is. Like, rather than being like, don't worry about it, you know, yes. and not, you know, so I think- I And think then your energy is telling a different story too. Yes. Yeah, I mean, being appropriately vulnerable, um, I think is important. So, because they see it anyway, right? So either you're putting up a front that they can see through, and then they then they that just that 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 dissolves the trust that you have mm -hmm. and makes them feel less safe. So, I think it's important to be honest, and it, it's not like oh, we're going to hide all this stuff from our kids and just pretend like everything's okay. I think that's that's a that's a mistake. But there was another piece to your question, though. What was the other piece that you were asking? Because I had a thought on that. Yeah, it's like, how do you stay in an authentic relationship with your kids, but then also oh. have like an ideal standard that you want to be as a parent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I kind of spoke to that, but the other piece that you were getting at yeah. was, uh, you know, helping to shape them into these people that, you know, you think that they can be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, as somebody who's down the road on the parenting thing, like Tyler and Trapper, Tyler just turned 27, Trapper's 26, 25, he's about to turn 26. And I'm not their dad, I'm their stepdad, but I've been in their lives since they were like four years old. I'm always entertained when I meet new parents who have like a baby or a toddler or just a young person. And they're like, here's what we're doing. They're gonna go to this school and they're gonna go to this school and we're getting them involved in this and that and that. And this is how it's gonna go. And they're gonna be super into this and they've got it all mapped out. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, you know, Good luck with that. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> because That's so true. If there's one thing I've learned is that children don't come from us, they come through us. 
and they are their own unique people. And certainly environment helps shape that. Um, but there's a lot about the way they come into the world that has nothing to do with you. And they have their own ideas of the things that they wanna do. And certainly you wanna set them up for success and plug them into lots of activities and expose them to as many things as possible. But you're there to kind of be responsible for them, put the, put the guardrails up to rush in and try to support them when they show an interest in something, but not to dictate who they're gonna be in the world or be frustrated when they show an interest in something that isn't the thing that you would have them be interested in or be upset that what they choose, you know, isn't, wasn't part of the plan. And that can be challenging, I think, for a lot of parents. I mean, my kids are all super different. And every time I think I've, I've got a lock on this parenting thing, like we just get a crazy curveball thrown at us. And it's like, holy shit, like, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Like, how, what are we doing here? How do you yeah. come together with Julie, you know, when there is a situation where perhaps you have different perspectives or ways in which you would handle it? And how do you decide like, which way you're going to go. Yeah, I, can, I mean, that's an ongoing thing. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, when I'm not my best self, I end up like projecting a sure. lot of fear and worry. And that's patterning that I learned as a young person, mm-hmm. the way that my mother parented me. And I've done so much work to overcome that and transcend that and be a very different kind of parent. But when I'm off my game, like I will default to that. And Julie has like, she'll be like, you're doing that thing again. Like, don't project this onto the kid. Like, the solution is always more love. And mm-hmm. she always has a belief that, you know, that is, a, that is the path forward when we're in a difficult situation. Like we just had a situation where our youngest wanted to go to a particular school. He didn't get in. Now we have to figure out a plan B. And we all thought that this thing was gonna work out. Like all the evidence was that it was gonna be fine. And it turned out to go a different way. And so I'm like, what are we gonna do? We gotta figure this out now. I need, a, you know, and Julie's like, it will be fine. Like he's going to be fine. This is emotional resilience that he's going to have to develop. And and she like just by dint of her ability to remain calm and neutral, uh, I think is a superpower mm-hmm. that you know is very difficult for me. It's a nice balance, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's so powerful because I'm more I would be more like you and having someone that is that assured sure of their spiritual path and sure of themselves and their relationship to God to support them in the best possible outcome is just powerful. What has been your relationship to spirituality and to divinity and to God? And was it brought into your life with the 12-step program and Julie or what's that been like? And how have you cultivated your own relationship that isn't, that's outside of those? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my my history with religion was not a great one. I mean, I grew up like a lot of kids. I went to Sunday school and mm-hmm. we would Same. go to church occasionally. And I was just like, what is going on? I never I was able totally. to connect with Same. it. It didn't mean anything to me. Yes. It just seemed annoying yes. and like something I didn't really want any part of. And usually the parents felt the same. But yeah, they I, still think, I completely I think, know. I think my parents were just doing it because same. that's what you do. And yes. I don't think they didn't right after seem the particularly we would leave connected early. to any of yes. it either. My mom I was like, calls what her, are we doing here? Yes. <laughs> you know? My mom calls herself a cat calls herself a yeah. cafeteria Catholic. 
She's like, I kind of just pick what I like and leave the rest. <laughs> I'm a, like, all right. Yeah, it's interesting. My parents now are very involved in in a church in their neighborhood, but mm. that was not the case when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't traumatized by it, but sure. I just wasn't interested in it. Um, and then, you know, went into the world and and plied my self-will with everything that I had and, you know, crashed into a brick wall and, you know, had to pick myself up and put these broken pieces back together. And yes, like, recovery is where I was introduced to spiritual principles that have now become the fabric upon which I, you know, make decisions and and live my life. Um, The primary one being that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, which is something that I had a very difficult time trying to understand or wrap my head around. Um, But the more that I began to practice these spiritual tools that I was learning in recovery, and seeing results from them, it's the seeing results part that I started to believe that there is something that exists beyond you know, our, our mere five senses to, to perceive. And it's just been a, a, a very loose, non-denominational, uh, non-specific relationship with, with spiritual energy and spirituality in general that has grown over many years through a number of modalities. Like when I got out of treatment, I started going to yoga and that's where I met Julie. And then I started doing meditation. And, you know, because I'm married to Julie, we have lots of interesting teachers and gurus who pass through our house (laughs) or who we've sat at the feet of. So I've spent time with many a quote unquote spiritual master in all their wisdom and their flaws and have absorbed all of that by osmosis. And I think that that congeals in some kind of loose, uh, ill-defined, relationship with the unknown that gives me peace and you know provides uh, guardrails and, and a bit of a North Pole. But it really boils down to just having faith that, that what we can touch, see, hear, smell, and feel isn't all that's going on. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to support that, that, that um, intelligence beyond the mind because I'm, I am this rational person and have a certain kind of education where it's all about intellectualizing everything. When I'm able to quiet that and, and listen to my intuition and trust my gut and follow more ephemeral instincts, that has really provided the life that I get to lead right now. And I have to remember that because I forget that. And Julie's always like, you're not gonna figure this out with your mind. Like, look at everything that we've done. Does that make logical sense to you? How do you think that this (laughs) happened? And I'm like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. I forgot. Mm. Isn't that wild? Mm -hmm. It's so wild. And I wish that for everyone, you know, to have that connection enough where it's so clear there's nothing but to follow it or you're unable to intellectualize yourself out of it. Yes. And I I think that takes a certain amount of not comparing yourself. I think when we're aware of like kind of how other people did it and what other people are doing, it becomes a little bit confusing and creates a little bit of static mm-hmm. between you and that feeling of of knowing and trust mm-hmm. and faith. One of my last questions is about embodiment mm-hmm. because I feel like you have an ever-evolving and very powerful relationship with your physical body, how you nourish it, how you get in tune with it, especially for your incredible feats as an athlete. What have you learned about the relationship with the body that you would like to share with our audience? I feel like for me, it's been such a such a key in connecting mm-hmm. with the divine and connecting really with part of my 
understanding of like why I'm here, <laughs> you know, like be a human on earth right now and um, not be so yeah. up here. Yeah. Well, first of all, the body is connected to the mind and the spirit, right? So they aren't, they aren't separate things. Like I tend to think of it holistically, like how, how is my relationship to my body informing my relationship to my higher self, to my mental health, to my emotional state of being? Like mm-hmm. these are not individual buckets, they all work in tandem. Um, and, and how I use my body is to, is to further my growth in those other areas. Um, and for me, it's just, you know, movement through endurance sports and training and all these things. They're not meditation per se, but they are meditative and they allow me to deepen my connection with my higher self and problem solve and do all the things that we know can happen when we're in a state of elevated breath. Um, and so it serves a great important function in that regard. And I think that, um, it's also taught me that we're all capable of more than we believe that we are because my body has taken me to places that I didn't think that it could take me. And if that could happen, I think that that's true for other people. And so it's expanded my capacity of potential in all areas of my life, because if I could achieve certain things with my physical body, which only operates in conjunction with my mind and my spirit and the like, um, then, what's possible in the other areas of my life that I really don't wanna look at? Where are the other growth opportunities as a father, as a husband, as a professional, as just a human being trying to be in greater service to others? And my physical pursuits have taught me that not only this idea of being more capable than we thought that we are, but that that is, um, something that cannot be fully tapped out. Like no matter how deep you go, there's always more growth. There's always more progress. And like, I'm 55 now and um, I can still go out and I don't feel like, I don't know what you're supposed to feel like at 55, but I, <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't say I feel like I'm 21, but I feel like I'm in, I don't know. I think of myself as being like, you know, in my, in my mid thirties probably, yeah. right? Um, and my body's able to do things that I was doing when I was that age as well. So it's, it's, it's also reframed my relationship with aging and my own like kind of mortality timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, powerful. Do you think it's intuition first and then intuition, and then the mind and body follows? Or do you think it's like you lead with action if you want to change your life with your body? Or do you think it's rewiring of the brain? Like of all those things, if people are looking to make change in their life, do you think it's, which one do you think leads? Action first. Um, 100%. So one of the one of the mantras I learned very early in recovery was this idea of mood follows action. I was at an AA meeting and and there was something that I was going through and I was frustrated and I didn't want to do this thing that I knew that I needed to do and my sponsor was like mood follows action and I I mean that was like must have been 1998 when he told me that and I never forget it and I think about it every single day. In other words when you feel resistance in your in your life, whatever it is, that thing that you wanna do or achieve or that task that's in the back of your mind that's bugging you, mm-hmm. um, our instinct is to say, I'll get to that when I feel like it. But as you know, often you never feel like doing it or you're waiting forever until you feel like it. 
And in truth, the discomfort that you're seeking to alleviate will happen only through taking the action. So it's about getting outside of your mind and just doing the thing. And when you do the thing and you get to the other side of it, you're like, oh, I feel better. So I think action is always first. And this is a conversation that I had with the neuroscientist, Andrew Huberman on the podcast who validated it through experiments that he's done on the brain. And I think the phrase he uses is behavior first, um, thoughts, perceptions, and emotions follow. Something mm-hmm. like that, which is a scientific spin on mood follows action. So really the lesson is develop the, the capacity and the habit of just doing, like taking the action, right? So in the context of, let's say going to the gym or something like that. Like, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to do it. I'll, I'll go to the gym when I feel like it. Well, why don't you just put your shoes on? Like, mm-hmm. I can do that, you know, just be. And then you're like, well, I put my shoes on. Like, I might as well stand up. And I stand up, you know, like it's t- breaking yes. things down into yeah. tiny little things. Yes. And obviously you go to the gym, you're never bummed that you did. You're like, ah, oh, I feel so much better, right? Because you did the thing. Powerful. I have to say, I, I can say it now at the end of uh, end of this, that we were, this was like one of those yeah. moments that we were like really, we had to pause yesterday and yeah. be like, we're talking to Rich tomorrow. Oh, and it's on. just such a, yeah. no, truly, it's such a big moment um, because we've admired you for so long and you are one of the inspirations yeah. behind us starting our show. You yeah. can tell by the pink room. It's very yeah, rich role. I, listen, I'm very secure in my masculinity. And I have, I have like- He's enjoying this chair I have, and I know it. Had I known, I would have worn like a pink t-shirt. I have some right. pink stuff. I have a swim bag, my swim bag. Yeah. Um, I have like this mesh bag where I put all my swim stuff in and it's pink. And I'm like, that's cool. Like I get to go to the pool and have this yeah. pink bag, I love you know? It. Yeah. And just like see what people You're think You're like of paradigm that. breaker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing the thing. Oh, yeah, I man. mean, meeting you eight years, it's so weird for me too, meeting you eight years ago and being like, wow, podcasting so amazing and so incredible. Being so inspired by the medium. And I had that same feeling where I was like, why isn't everyone doing this? And then being so inspired that we started ours six years ago, you know, mm-hmm. was like, whoa, I... And it's been something like that for me where it's the small actions we've taken every single day um, that have changed. So it's so beautiful to have you on. Julie's incredible. We love watching you and your story. And um, yeah, it's been an honor. So last question from me, what are you really excited about right now? Like what feels like something that's really just kind of consuming your brain of something that you're really looking forward to bringing into the world or something that's really motivating you right now? Mm. I am, I mean, the thing, the, the, the consciousness that I'm trying to inhabit right now is this idea of anything being possible. And, um, and I'm really like feeling that right now. Like I have so much opportunity. I've worked very hard to get to a place where I can, you know, be available for such opportunities, but I'm really seeing that those things are coming to fruition. And it just gives me this very nourished, feeling. And it's about like, how do I channel that with responsibility for the highest good? Um, in terms of specifics, we just came out with Voicing Change 2. Uh, last year, we, we created this coffee table book for the podcast that has excerpts from a number of our past favorite guests with beautiful photographs and essays and, and the like. And we just came out with volume two of it. So that's new in the world. And I'm excited about that. I've got this documentary project on addiction that I'm trying to birth into the world. Um, I don't know, lots of, lots of stuff, yeah. lots of stuff. It's kind but, of weird when you can 
you have all possibilities available. Mm-hmm. You know, before you want all the chances, you want all the opportunities, and then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I actually have a choice now. It's kind of weird. You're like, it becomes, what do I? It becomes mostly about saying no, like, yeah, yes. like how, and which I'm not very good at because like, there, I remember well when there were no, nothing, yes. nobody was calling. Yes. And I just wanted somebody to call, <laughs> you know? Yes, and I don't want to miss anything and all the opportunities are awesome, you know, but you can't do all of them. So it's about being really clear on like, okay, what it is it, what is it that you're actually trying to do here? What is in the service to the to the mission, you know? Yes. And what's your favorite way to take care of yourself these days? Sleep. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's not new. No, it's like, no. On know. that Casper mattress, baby. Sure. <laughs> no, I got the Birch. Really? Yeah, that's great. That was Birch mattress. I just got, Birch so I don't know if you guys know, I we sleep outside Birch. in a tent. Right? Yes. So yeah. I, I sleep in a tent and for my birthday, uh, Julie got me this glamping tent, like a proper, like Whoa. big canvas Sexy. glamping tent. Cool. And I have like a bed frame in there. and a bed. So it's like yeah. a room now. Yes. Wow. Crazy. Like, for, people, so, for people that don't know, why do you sleep in a tent? It's a long story. But <laughs> the truth is like, I, I struggle with sleep. Sleep's mm-hmm. super important to me. If I don't get eight hours of sleep, I feel terrible. People who claim they can go on five hours. I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, yes. like how important it is. And I just really... Um, care for my sleep and 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 need it to be protected. And I'm somebody who sleeps a lot better when it's really cold out. And Julie likes the room warm um, or at least warmer. I don't mm-hmm. expect many people want it as cold as I want it. So we would argue in the bedroom. She's like, it's too cold. And she'd be under all these covers and I'm on top of the covers and neither of us were sleeping well. And we have a flat roof at our house. And one summer night, I we... The kid with the kids, we would go out on that roof and have a slumber party and project movies on this wall. And I fell asleep on the roof and woke up the next morning and just had the most amazing night of sleep. And I was like, that was incredible. Like, I forgot what it feels like to mm. be outdoors. I said, I'm going to sleep again on the roof. She was like, fine, you know, not have at it. But you wake up. I mean, we're in Southern California, so it doesn't get that cold, but it goes down into like the low 40s at night. But you'd wake up covered in all this condensation. Um, so all wet. And so I was like, well, I need a tent if I'm going to do this. So I got it. It just kind of like- It progressed. Suddenly became <laughs> yes, this thing yes. that was kind of like a joke, but I was like, I'm really enjoying this. Like, I'm like, I love you, babe, but yes. I am sleeping so much better. Yes. And kind of began like that a couple of years ago to the point now where, yeah, I've been sleeping in a tent for like over, I don't know, over two, well over two years. I can't remember when I started exactly. It's also yeah. nice to be in your own energy. Yeah. I can imagine. That's yeah. what she said too. I remember what you guys talked about on the show. She's like, I'm doing a lot of spiritual things in my sleep. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, I need the peace. And I, I was like, I dang, that's so true. Yes. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot, of, people have a lot of opinions and there's a lot of baggage around what, it, what, what does that say about your marriage if you guys sleep separately? Mm. Um, you know, we've been together for over 20 years. We have a very healthy marriage. We have a lot of intimacy. We have our, you know, we have our time. Um, but the sleep thing, we this is just what works for us. So, Love it. Anyway. Love it. Anyone who thinks just like intimacy uh, just lives in the bed, like yeah, together. That's hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> yes. But it's true. Um, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so, yeah. so much. No, I love what you guys pleasure. are doing. I think it's really important. Um, to provide some really good guidance to young people out there. And I appreciate you having me on and it's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. All right, y'all. We'll We'll see see you next time. time. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much, Rich. Again, richroll.com. The podcast is The Rich Roll Show. You can watch him on YouTube, youtube.com slash richroll. Some of my favorites are his episode with Andrew Huberman, Cal Newport, and his wife. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It means so much to us. And thank you to our sponsors for this episode. They make this show possible. You can find more information about these incredible brands in our show notes, as well as on almost30.com. And you get some crazy almost 30 discounts. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. We'll see you on Instagram, almost 30 podcast. You can subscribe on YouTube, almost30.com for anything else. And we love you. Love you. Bye.